This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Juno Diaz read his story, The Ghosts of Gloria Lara, from the November 6, 2023 issue of the magazine. Diaz is the author of the story collections Drown, and This is How You Lose Her, and the novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 2008. Now here's Juno Diaz. The Ghosts of Gloria Lara Before that year, I knew nothing about Colombia, nothing real. I was 11 and too focused on the Dominican Republic I'd left behind and on my own immigrant bullshit to worry about anywhere else. If I'd had my way, I wouldn't ever have thought about the DR, but in my household, there was no escaping it. Those were the early years of our immigration, when my mother still kept up with the news back home. Every morning without fail, before I even had a chance to brush my teeth, she had me tune my father's beloved radio to the Spanish stations. And because I was the curious kid I was, I listened, and because I couldn't help myself, I learned. Maybe it was the stations we were tuning into but they made it sound like the DR was on a rocket to hell. Nothing was going right. Nobody had jobs, and there were strikes every day, and food shortages, and super sensational murders, and politicians accusing one another of all sorts of lunacies. As if that weren't apocalyptic enough, this was a few months after Hurricane David more or less dropped the island on its fucking head, leaving thousands dead, hundreds of thousands homeless, and entire neighborhoods blown to splinters. Forty-plus years later, and you still have domos who can't hear the name David without breaking out in hives. Here was the weirdness. It didn't matter whether the radio was talking about the annihilation of David or some grisly-ass 20-person bus collision. My mother never reacted. Not with her face, or with her words, just kept folding clothes or washing peas, her thin, eye-starved throughout my childhood face pinched inward. 
It was a kind of passivity that I didn't understand. Why was she listening to the news if she wasn't going to react? My father, for example, was more prototypically Dominican. When he listened to the radio or watched the news or read the paper or breathed, he always let the world know what he was thinking. A horrible traffic accident? Dominicans drive like monkeys. Political malfeasance? Dominicans are corrupt por naturaleza. Hurricane David? Trujillo would have cleaned that up in two weeks tops. Ex-President Balaguer? The greatest intellectual in the entire history of the Dominican Republic. The other contenders? He never said. Your average Dominican 11-year-old wouldn't have known Balaguer from a hole in the ground. But my father was an avowed Balaguerista and often preached the gospel of Balaguer to me and my older brother. How, after our dictator for life, Trujillo was assassinated by traitors and maricons, it was Balaguer who restored order. Balaguer was the only reason, he explained, that we weren't all comunistas or maricons, which seemed interchangeable to him. Here's what was interesting. On the many occasions when my father waxed nostalgic about Balaguer and his mano dura against the subversives, you would have thought my mom didn't even speak Spanish. That's how indifferent she was. But God forbid the radio mentioned Balaguer's name when my father wasn't around. Then it was on. Her mask cracked. She'd shake whatever she was holding. Her eyes would flash, and she'd invariably hiss a variation of ese pedazo de mierda. My mother was a conservative woman, Dominican campesina conservative, and by right should have been pulling for both Trujillo and Balaguer. But she hated Balaguer, a hatred that extended backward to Trujillo, who trained him and taught him his dictatorial ways. Her loathing was not some partisan abstraction either. It was profoundly personal. A few months after we'd left the DR, her favorite cousin was murdered, gunned down on the street, and she blamed Balaguer. This was my uncle Renato, who for as long as I can remember had been our family's one and only comunista. You already see where this is going. I'd never met him in person, knew him only through photographs. When we were still in the DR, he was always either in hiding or in exile abroad. But all us kids knew one thing about Uncle Renato, that my mother adored him. He'd been something of an older brother to her, the one she never had, an ultra-Catholic, too, until he'd gone to the capital to study, where instead of becoming an engineer, he became a communist. I knew from the stories I'd overheard that Renato had fought against the Americans when they invaded. My military father had fought for them, had gone to prison for agitating against Balaguer, and had been tortured there something horrible. And in 1970, he'd washed up in Romania, part of that movement of Latin American radicals who found shelter in the Soviet bloc. He should have stayed in Romania, but he was too much the revolutionary, and in 1975, 
the year we finally secured our visas to join our father in the U.S., he returned to the DR. My mother begged him to stay in Romania, find a nice girl. He wouldn't listen. He was committed to overthrowing Balaguer and turning the DR into the next Cuba. Overthrow Balaguer? Maybe during his first year in office, when he was on shaky ground, but in his ninth? Like the egg trying to fight the rock. By 1975, President Balaguer had the military, the elites, the police, the campesinos, the church, and even the U.S. Secret Services under his little heel. 1975 was just about the worst year for this kind of thing. A couple of years earlier, some of Renato's comrades had attempted to overthrow Balaguer and gotten themselves massacred, and ever since the old lich had turned up the heat. He had the Trujillo apparatus running around the clock, and anyone with the slightest whiff of red on them was getting bodied by the death squads. My uncle lasted seven months, most of it on the run, darting from one safe house to the next. My mother went to see him twice during that time, right before we left the country. She didn't take us kids because it was too dangerous. Both times she brought him his favorite food, a pastelon. He ate, asked about the family, and then sent her on her way before anything happened. She didn't tell him that we were going to the U.S. The only thing he hated more than Balaguer was the U.S. Why don't you go back to Romania, she asked. He smiled. She remembered that smile. Because the future is for revolutionaries. The day he died, he was waiting in the Parque Independencia to board a bus bound for Aswa and then the border. Maybe planning to visit relatives or maybe heading into exile via Haiti. No one really knows. My mother hadn't heard from him in weeks. Before he could set foot on the bus, a never-described or identified man walked up, leveled a revolver, and shot him clear out of his left floor shine. A murder in broad daylight at a crowded bus stop, and no one saw anything, heard anything, thought anything. But somehow everyone knew it was Balaguer's totally not official death squad, the Banda Colora, that had done it. One bystander was kind enough to place my uncle's loose shoe on his bird-like chest. A photo of the murder scene was printed in a newspaper. I never found out which one, and a worn clipping of said photo found its way to my mother in the U.S. No matter how hard I try, I'll never fully capture my mother in words, but know this at least. She was the sort of woman who kept a torn-out newspaper photo of her dead cousin in the drawer where she stored all our passports. It was a cruel thing that they did, killing him and then taking that photo. For a long time, that was my vision of the Dominican Republic, a floor shime stamping down on the breastplate of my uncle forever. So that was the scene. Me, my mother, my dead uncle folded up in a passport, my dad's radio, an occasional mention of Balaguer. When, 
February 27, 1980 rolled around. February 27th was Dominican Independence Day, which we didn't celebrate in my household. My father loved himself some dictator types, but national holidays couldn't be bothered, and neither really could my mother, but for different reasons, I'm sure. On that particular Independence Day, a group of Colombian guerrillas seized the Dominican embassy in Bogota, of all places, which I had to look up in our school's atlas. At the time of the attack, the embassy was hosting a big old independent celebration for the entire diplomatic community, which meant the guerrillas not only captured the Dominican ambassador, they also bagged the Austrian, Brazilian, Costa Rican, Egyptian, Guatemalan, Haitian, Israeli, Mexican, Swiss, Uruguayan, Venezuelan, and U.S. ambassadors as well, plus the papal nuncio, whoever the fuck that was. Must have been quite a party, until it wasn't. Compared with the Iranian hostage crisis, day 115, it seemed like no big deal to me, but my mother had a very different reaction. From the moment she heard the first report, she tuned in like a woman obsessed. And because I wanted my mother to like me, and because I didn't have any real friends at the time, I started following along too. She not only listened to the news on the regular radio, she had me messing around with my dad's shortwave to see if we could pick up any broadcast direct from Bogota. We couldn't. And every day she sent me up to the Parlin Pathmark to check both the English and the Spanish newspapers. And if I found any mention of the siege, I had to buy the papers and bring them home. The Spanish article she read very slowly, two fingers pressing down on each word as though it might up and bolt, but the English articles I had to translate word for word out loud. At school, I started looking up Columbia in the encyclopedias to try to understand what in the world was going on. Not a lot of information in our elementary school library, but there was more down at Sayreville Public Library. Before long, I knew more about Colombia and the Movimiento 19 de Abril than I did about the Dominican Republic. It was exactly the kind of outfit my uncle would have approved of. A guerrilla movement fighting an oppressive government. My mother was entranced, her version of entranced. She still listened passively, mutely, but there was a shift, something in the quality of listening that was different. She didn't busy herself with chores, held herself immobile, almost as though she had family in that mess. My father wasn't fixated in the same way, but he followed the coverage like probably every other Dominican was doing. And as a former military officer of the pro-Trujillo variety, he shared his opinions, of course. He couldn't believe that the Colombians were negotiating with the guerrillas, whose demands included money to continue the revolution and the release of hundreds of their comrades. My father screamed at the TV, Give them hot, juicy bullets. During our meals, he offered expert advice on how the Colombians might retake the embassy with helpful diagrams on the back of my notebooks, bringing out his various firearms to lend his argument extra authority. My older brother watched this all with open amusement, encouraged him with questions like, 
How exactly would you kill a terrorist through a locked door? My mother never responded to these planning sessions, but as the weeks went on, I noticed something in her expression that baffled me. Until it dawned on me that, duh, she was in fact rooting for the gorillas. Something that at the time made no sense to me, reared as I was to think of revolutionaries and communists as Satans of a lesser order. The siege lasted 61 days, and my mother followed every little turn, every release, every near settlement. By the end, the M-19 leaders, Comandante Uno, Comandante Maria, and La Chiqui, the female guerrilla negotiator I fell in love with and whose real name was Carmenza Cardona Londoño, had become part of our idiolect, the secret language that my mother and I shared. Not that anyone else in the family noticed. My father was oblivious of how closely we were following the Colombian crisis. He had his girlfriends to worry about, and my brother was even more indifferent. My mother and I could have been on fire, and I doubt my brother would have given a flying fuck, much less thrown us a wet towel. The Colombian siege was our thing, really. The one and only time my mother and I had ever done anything together as a unit. We were never close, you see. My mother preferred my brother, openly, flagrantly. Me, she just tolerated. It took many years for me to realize that it wasn't personal. That was the way she was. She just didn't have it in her heart to love more than she was already loving. She had loved the two almost sons, the ones she had miscarried before we were born, the first in a sugarcane field and the second during the American invasion in the back of a burning truck. And the fact that she had any love for anyone after all she'd gone through was pretty miraculous. At the time, I didn't brood on it. Every parent I knew up close had their favorites, figured that was the way shit was. Didn't mean I wasn't hungry for her affection, which was why I fetched the newspapers without complaint and turned on the radio when she commanded, looked up what I could about Colombia to share with her, and tried to chat up our one Colombian neighbor in London Terrace, Mr. Longo, without much success. But more than anything, I just sat with her and we listened to the radio together. And then on day 61, it all ended. The guerrillas left the embassy, shielded by the last of their hostages. The Dominican ambassador had already been released, but not the American one, and flew to Cuba, where Fidel was waiting for them with open arms. My father watched the recap on the news that night with almost comical fury. Just shoot them already, he cried. When the news played a clip of La Chiqui's Fuego speech in Havana, my father couldn't take it. He left the apartment without a word, off to visit one of his other women, no doubt. My mother watched him go, waved for me to turn off the TV. But if it wasn't triumph I sensed radiating through the heartbreak, I don't know what it was. When you're poor or a Colombian revolutionary, triumphs don't last. 
A year later, La Chiqui was dead. Like my uncle Renato, she had refused to stay on the sidelines in Cuba and had returned to Colombia to continue La Guerra Revolucionaria. And this time, the military finished her. My father, alas, wasn't around to celebrate. Not long after the embassy siege, he had run off with one of his girlfriends, the ugly one, my mother called her, with her usual incisiveness. And not two months after that bit of ridiculousness, my brother was diagnosed with the cancer that would eat him up. He'd spend the final years of his life pretending that he was fine and absolutely nothing was wrong. An act of such sustained, bald-faced denial that even now, four decades later, I have trouble grokking. As for me and my mother, the end of the Colombian siege was a goodbye of sorts for us as well. Last time we ever did anything like that, anything together. Also, the last time I cared about what was happening to Dominicans for years and years. And yet, in spite of everything, something of that Columbia moment remained alive in me, remained alive in my mother, too, lingered the way the radioactivity from my brother's treatments lingered in his bones. A shadow, you might say, an echo. Whenever Columbia got mentioned, even in the depths of my turned-white obsession, I noticed. And any time I saw Mr. Longo, who lived across the parking lot, I was reminded of those 61 days. If Mr. Longo and I happened to be waiting online together at the Pathmark, for example, I always asked him how it was going in Colombia. The motherfucker answered the same way every time. Jodido. Sometimes I still found myself looking at books in the library or staring at the country in atlases. All of this explains, at least to me, what happened in 1985. That was the year that Mr. Longo's brother, Wilson, arrived in our neighborhood, straight from Colombia, with his son, Alberto, in tow. The year Wilson Longo fell in love with my mother, and the year I got my second huge dose of true terror. The first dose I'll get to later. If I'm going to talk about Wilson Longo, first I need to say something about his older brother. The elder Longo had moved into Building 4 a few years before the embassy fiasco, and about the only thing that made him stand out, besides the fact that he was Colombian, was that he had a massive Charles Bronson mustache and drove a 1970 Charger that everyone whistled over. That was it, nothing else to report. Elder Longo was semi-invisible and didn't talk to anyone. His apartment was so quiet you could never tell when he was home and when he wasn't. Dude was all work or all charger. On nights that I couldn't sleep, I caught sight of him in his coveralls, heading off to whatever garage he worked at. Even though we were the only ones up at 5 a.m., I didn't wave at him and he didn't wave at me. He didn't seem like a top-of-the-morning type. As for Wilson and his son Alberto, one day they weren't, and the next day they were. Typical shit in my neighborhood. 
Folks appeared and disappeared without warning all the time. Families doubled in size, immigrant mitosis, or whittled down to nothing, like it was the most normal thing in the world. Or someone you thought was just visiting was actually staying, or at least trying to stay, which was the case with Wilson Longo and his son. Wilson Longo, or Mr. Wilson, as my mother called him, was neither handsome nor ugly, wasn't anything really. A bland, tan face with a wide nose and wavy Adam Clayton Powell Jr. hair. As anonymous as his brother, except that Mr. Wilson was the hairiest man I'd ever seen. Some straight Chewbacca shit, hair bursting up from his collar like follicle flame, one half moon away from werewolf. Even when he shaved, he looked beard imminent. I guess the other thing was that he had giant fucking calves, the kind of calves you climb the Matterhorn with. He arrived from Colombia looking rough, like he'd got a beating on the flight and then another one at immigration. And that wailed-on look never left him the whole time he lived among us. We followed his progress, less out of curiosity than out of habit. Newcomers were always objects of suspicion until they weren't. He joined his brother at the garage for a few weeks, but that didn't take. He had a fistfight with another worker, and that became the pattern for him. He had trouble keeping any gig for long. There was always some blow-up or another. Ended up at home a lot, drinking, and playing Colombian music. Lucho Bermudez and the rest. And listening to soccer matches non-fucking-stop. On certain weekend days, he'd chase a soccer ball around the parking lot, drunkenly. Which seemed to me one of the most embarrassing things an adult could do. Under normal circumstances, I doubt I would have paid too much attention to either Mr. Wilson or his son, but these were definitely not normal circumstances. 1985 was my family's annus horribilis, the last year of my brother's life. He had entered his final gyre and was talking to none of us. Just sprawled his skeletal ass in his room, waiting for the inevitable end. He had visitors, mostly girls, and not just from around the way. Caballotas from all over New Jersey, even some gringas. Don't know how in the world he had met them all. This was way before the internet. But good-looking brothers have their ways, I guess. All beautiful, all magnificently teary-eyed. They would sit with him for hours, watching TV or doing whatever they did in that closed room before heading out. My mother never said a word about the visitors and never offered these girls more than water either, unless they spoke to her in Spanish. De donde tu eres, she'd ask. And if they answered respectfully, she'd offer them coffee and pan caliente and wait to see if they washed their own saucer or not. My mother had lost nearly as much weight as my brother and gone just as quiet. Her eyes, so Mesopotamian, now overwhelmed her famished face. She no longer cried over my nowhere-in-sight father. 
She no longer cried over my brother either. Every ounce of her seemed bent on holding back the tides of reality, keeping the cancer at bay. Dios doesn't want tears. I heard her telling our neighbor, Doña Agpangan, he wants devotion. She gave him plenty of that, went to Mass every single morning, which was a big change from her old secular days. Beseeching Dios, San Lázaro, and La Virgen de la Alta Gracia for the miracle that never came. When she wasn't praying, she worked cleaning houses in the Brunswicks. Some of her customers would soon be my professors at Rutgers and spent the rest of her time taking care of my brother at home or in the hospital. By then, all her friends had pulled back. I'd said it before, and I'll say it again. Cancer is a planet that no one wants to visit for long. Only Doña Agpangan, our short, cigarette-addicted Panay neighbor, still came around, praying with my mother and bringing over empanadas that I always ended up eating. None of us in the family talk much anymore. But when my mother did open her mouth, it was only ever to tear chunks out of me for whatever I'd done wrong at school or at home. And because I was no longer the mamito I'd been, I'd tear chunks out of her right back. Tu si eres bruto, she'd spit. And I would say, hijo de bruta. She wasn't wrong to get at me. By our annus horribilis, I was so depressed I had trouble doing much of anything at school. Even multiple choice quizzes were too much. And a lot of the time I didn't bother going to school. Just walked to the library and pretended to read books until it was time to walk home. My depression had me thinking some typically dark shit. We had a lot of firearms in our house, checkoff alert, which my father had left behind and about the only thing that my brother could bring himself to do in those hideous months was keep them all clean and ready to rock. In the midst of those funereal days, I took to sleeping with my father's monstrous Astra 44 caliber under my bed, fully fucking loaded. My reason? Just in case my brother decided in his last days to go for me. Once or twice he had mentioned something about shooting me in the face before he went. A farewell makeover. And also, just in case, I had the sudden urge to put a bullet right up through my nasal cavity. Such were my thoughts. I don't know if it was my mother's unhappiness, or Wilson Longo's unhappiness, or just the gravity of two lost Latin types in proximity but the pair of them ended up connecting. He'd wave to her every chance he got, and when she saw him sitting out on his front stoop alone, she'd invite him for a cup of coffee. They were both old school and talked to each other decorously, usted this, usted that, and he had a gentle two-handed way of handing back the mug as though he feared for its safety. Anyway, that's how it started over coffee, usually while my brother was at the hospital and she had nothing else to do. And Mr. Wilson, 
happy to find a sympathetic soul in an alien country, started coming around a lot, stood on the stoop and talked to her in that beautiful Colombian accent of his, and my mother talked back. A lot. I don't think my mother had ever talked so much in her life. The neighborhood, her first year in the States, who might have a job for him, the news of the day. Maybe that was who she'd been before my father and all those miscarriages changed her. Mr. Wilson started walking her to daily mass, would wait outside smoking cigarettes until she'd finished with her prayers and then walk her back from St. Bernadette. Church is for fools, he liked to say, teasing her, but she never took the bait. Church is for the hopeful. Some immigrants slash refugees hold on to their secrets for life, but whether it was in Mr. Wilson's nature to be forthcoming or whether something about my mother encouraged him, he opened up to her really quickly, explained that in Colombia he'd been a teacher who'd had the misfortune to get caught up completely por casualidad in a horrendous case involving the kidnapping and murder of a prominent politica for which the authorities had arrested him. This was, of course, the notorious Gloria Lara de Echeverri case, which I didn't learn about until years later. And it was only thanks to dumb luck that Mr. Wilson had got out of jail alive. Not knowing if he'd be rearrested, he'd done the smart thing and gone into exile, dragging his son with him. As for the boy's mother, she was in Europe, remarried. Not much help there. What's the difference between immigration and exile, I asked my brother. What's the difference between assholes, my brother said. When I asked my mother, she gave a weary look. Isn't that what you have your teachers for? I had never seen anyone so into my mother. Mr. Wilson would talk to her for as long as she'd have him, sometimes letting night fall around them, until even his son had to call him home in embarrassment. He even tried to help her improve her English. He was far from fluent, but compared with Mom, he was a veritable Herman Melville. It was some wild Romeo shit. My own father had never shown my mother an ounce of affection, so this was a brand new experience for me. My brother seemed to think the whole thing was a hoot. Maybe you could bring my coffin to the wedding, he said to my mother. Don't be ridiculous. Es un amigo. Nada más. Un amigo. That word has so many resonances in English and in Spanish, especially when it's one's mother uttering it. Truth is, I never could decide if my mother liked Mr. Wilson or not. I'm not sure she knew herself, not at that point. So what was it between them? Basic loneliness? Pity? Her need to fix something? Anything? She'd catch sight of him lumbering after the soccer ball in the parking lot, going until he was tripping and sagging over himself, and she would shake her head. She took to sending meals over to the Longo household, heaping plates of locrio 
were Dominican lasagna that I had to deliver. And it always pissed me off, but what could I do? What is it? Alberto would always say when he answered the door. If there was anyone in the world more unhappy than I was, it was Alberto. Poison, I'd say, and leave him to it. If my mother wanted to feel sorry for anyone, it should have been Mr. Wilson's son. Alberto had a rough time of it in London Terrace. First off, you never wanted to be any kind of immigrant in a neighborhood like mine. Tolerant and opened arm, we were not. Second, that was about the worst time to be Colombian. Scarface was out, so everyone asked Alberto where he was keeping the cocaine and calling him Tony Montana, which was stupid since Tony Montana was Cuban, not Colombian. But when has geographical accuracy ever gotten the way of cruelty? Alberto was a tall kid. Pentecostal-looking, if you know what I mean, with bags under his eyes that looked eerie on a ninth grader. Dude hunched and had a square box haircut, so of course his other nickname was Lurch. I like to think that had any kids known what he had endured before arriving, the arrest of his father, the full-out media demonization of all the suspects in the case, the months of terror, wondering whether he'd be arrested and tortured too, they might have gone easier on him. But I seriously doubt they would have fucking cared. He was an awkward-looking doof who didn't speak English, and whose clothes and haircut were extra corny, who showed up at the bus stop that first month with a soccer ball under one of his long arms, probably hoping the ball would help him make friends didn't work. He was, as they say, scheduled for destruction. After the first week, the idiots asked to see the ball, and like a dope, he let one hold it. An idiot number one kicked said ball over into the next parking lot just as the bus pulled up, and I watched Alberto trying to decide, bus or ball, bus or ball. In the end, the bus won. Don't worry, Tony, idiot one said. It'll be there when you get back. Of course it wasn't. Any sane person would expect the bullshit to stop after a month or two, but a sane person didn't know neighborhoods like ours. Kids just never let up. The oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, tend themselves to become oppressors. Frere didn't know the half of it. I remember the one time I made friendly with Alberto. This was early on. After school, I showed him around the neighborhood, nothing much to see. I took him up to Honda Hill and down to the landfill. I showed him where the sanitation workers piled discarded books. It was from these cast-offs that I had built my little library. He looked at everything, without the slightest trace of interest. And the more indifferent he seemed, the harder I tried to sell. What, precisely? Our shitty neighborhood? Our stinking landfill? Me? It wasn't until I showed him the issue of Dragon Magazine I'd recently bought that he brightened up. 
I have those magazines, he said in Spanish. You do? He nodded. Which ones? I asked. All of them, he said proudly. Now, you have to understand that in those days I was into Dungeons and Dragons the way Americans are into money. Had stacks of modules and cans full of dice. Role-playing games kept me alive when everything else was telling me to shoot myself. So when Alberto said he had all the Dragon magazines, I could barely contain myself. Could I see them? I asked. Of course, he said. I waited a day, a week, a month, but he never showed them to me. The excuses were endless. Claimed he was reading them. All of them, I asked incredulously. Claimed no one was allowed into his apartment. Claimed his father wouldn't let him take the magazines out of the house. What was funny that even though I knew better, I kept holding out hope that Alberto was telling the truth. That he really had all those dragon back issues. I kept waiting and waiting, and such was the nature of my hope, of my longing, that it was only after he left for Europe that I finally allowed myself to accept that I had been had. Alberto and the States ended just about how you would expect. One day, the craziest of the local kids said some shit to Alberto in half Spanish, and Alberto said some shit back in full Spanish. And when the kid tried to knock Alberto down, Alberto punched him straight in the mouth, so the kid pulled a knife. At that point, any other motherfucker would have run. But Alberto must have had enough of all the bullshit because he made a play for the blade. I wasn't there, but from what I hear, the cuts on his palms were ghastly as fuck. There was still blood on the sidewalk the next day, everyone pointing it out to me. Looked like a murder scene. Alberto stayed out of school for the rest of the quarter. I saw him kicking his soccer ball around with his bandaged hand. And then, without warning, he was gone. He had wanted to return to Colombia, but that was impossible. So he went off to live with his moms in Austria. All this my mother learned from Mr. Wilson, who kept her up past her bedtime talking on the porch. He wanted Alberto with him, his only son, but what could he do? He'd already made the boy suffer enough. It wasn't you, my mother said. It was them. He sighed so loudly I could hear him from the couch. Later that night, my mother asked me to show her Austria on a map. She ran a finger over the strange names. And what do they speak there? Hitler, my brother offered from the sofa. At the end of April, my brother collapsed at a slot machine in Atlantic City and ended up back in Beth Israel, and my mother went with him. I think she came home twice that month, and both times I was either in school or out. Left me a note with my name misspelled, and a huge pot of mortal. Mr. Wilson often stopped by to ask after her, 
and then he'd sit on our stoop smoking cigarette after cigarette, as though hoping she might suddenly show up. On one of those nights, I cadged a cigarette, and we smoked quietly for a while. My mother says you are a teacher. I was a teacher. He pretended to write on a chalkboard with great flourish. Was it a good school? He nodded. My son was really happy there. I can't imagine you as a teacher. He said something to me. Do you recognize the language? I shook my head. He spelled out the words, Agreskit medendo. After a while, he threw his cigarette away and walked back to his apartment. When my brother and my mother finally returned to London Terrace, my brother looked like a very handsome cadaver. He had nasty open sores on his arms from where the chemo had leaked out and burned him, and I could have circled his wrist with my thumb and index finger. Ready for my close-up or what, my brother said. You don't look so good. He laughed. I'm going to look a whole lot worse. My mother had changed, too. She came back from that final round of chemo with zero patience. Everything was wrong, from the water pressure to the noise outside, and she blew up at me at the slightest thing, called me a malcriado, a malparido, a desgraciado. She started attending Mass twice a day and invited some of the local women over at bizarre hours to pray for my brother's eternal soul. A couple of them even tried to pray over me, but by then I didn't give a fuck about anything and walked right on by. Mr. Wilson still came around, but things weren't the same as before. My mother never talked to him for long, as though afraid that any shift in her attention might send my brother's health spiraling. How's your English? he asked in English. It good, she replied, in an exaggerated way that made them both laugh. We should all learn the universal language, he said. El inglés mal hablado. Mr. Wilson had never been very grounded. But without his son or my mother around, he seemed to flounder. Stopped looking for real work altogether, and when he needed money, he'd wash dishes at the Peter Pan Diner or pump gas up on Route 9 for a few hours. He and his brother were arguing, too real intense. You could hear them across the parking lot, and whether it was because of these spats or everything else, Mr. Wilson started running off to NYC a lot, visiting some Colombians he'd met, staying on their couches until they had enough of him and sent his ass back to New Jersey. It was on one of those nights that Mr. Wilson broke into our apartment. It was, I guess, an honest mistake. Our apartments were mirrors of each other, just on opposite sides of the parking lot. It was three in the morning, and dude was maboracho que el diablo. And he tried his key in our door, and when that didn't work, he must have decided in a fit of inebriated industry to slide open our kitchen window, 
and wriggle through head first. And because he was drunk out of his mind and no ninja, dude face planted on some dishes and then crashed on the floor with broken dishes in pursuit. The noise brought my whole family running. My brother with his ZZ-75, me and my tidy whities with a baseball bat, and my mother in her bata fumbling with her glasses. When we realized that the mumbling mess on the linoleum was Mr. Wilson, relief all around. He's drunk, my mother announced, and my brother snapped, Senota. Come on, let's go, my brother said. Let's go. But Mr. Wilson refused to budge. This is my house. You get out. Listen to this motherfucker, my brother said. Pick him up. I put the bat down, hesitated, and that's when the whole thing went fucking sideways. One second Mr. Wilson was wallowing on the floor amid the broken dishes, and the next second he leaped up like a fucking cobra, smashed his entire weight against my skeletal brother, pinning him against the fridge, trying to grab at the CZ-75. If you've been to the fire range as often as me and my brother had, you know exactly how dangerous that was. I didn't have time to think. All I could see was my mother's big eyes and my brother's bald head. And I jumped in and grabbed Mr. Wilson's arm. And he fell back, classic judo move, and brought us all down onto the floor. We landed on my brother hard, which sucked. But what really sucked was that my brother had his hand on the pistol. Mr. Wilson had his hand on the pistol. I had my hand on the pistol. And somehow, in that lucha libre, the barrel ended up pointed straight at my eye. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't pull it away or redirect it. Everyone was fighting wildly for the pistol. My brother included, with no regard for my face. And the barrel just got bigger and bigger. And everything in me went cold because I knew, in a prophetic, out-of-body way, that the CZ-75 was about to cavitate my brains all over the kitchen. I figured that was it for me. Bye-bye. But then my mother shouted, Wilson, stop! 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 And it was the craziest shit I ever heard. My mom trying to speak English, but he must have heard her because I felt him loosen his grip. And with one final twist, my brother wrenched the gun away. And the black, devouring eye of the barrel released me. And I dropped back into the real world. To life in a huge, heart-bursting rush. Put that away, my mother whispered. The police are here. Our upstairs neighbors, hearing all the commotion, had called them. At first, it looked like everything was okay. The cops didn't charge in with weapons drawn, 
or shoot my mother or anything crazy like that. But when they tried to herd Mr. Wilson out of our apartment, it was round fucking two. Dude started another fight, but this was even more berserk than the first. Where the fuck did he find the energy? Shouting and kicking and contorting and crying for his son. And even those two massive white cops had a hard time controlling him. And they all broke just about everything in the kitchen. The cops finally pinned him to the ground and the older one jammed the cuffs on. And that was when Mr. Wilson started really screaming. And when I say screaming, I mean screaming. A scream that must have reached the Madison Park to South Amboy to New York fucking city. The kind of scream that I never want to hear again as long as I live. You would have thought that someone had plunged a red-hot dagger straight into Mr. Wilson's heart. My mother, who had been watching the battle in stunned silence, crumpled like she'd been poleaxed. Remember how I said I experienced my second blast of pure terror because of Mr. Wilson? You might have thought it was the whole pistol-in-the-face moment, which was fucking scary. But it was that scream, that horrible, horrible scream. Real story. During my first year in the U.S., my first year with my father, he liked to take my brother and me down to the basement and make us look at a collection of photos he had. In order to toughen us up, to make us dique soldiers, these were from his good old days back on the island. Photos of men and women handcuffed naked to the same metal chair in what must have been a cuartel, probably the one he'd been assigned to. Some of the people were alive, some of them weren't. During these toughening up sessions, if either my brother or I looked away, my father slapped us. Hard. So of course we didn't look away. We saw. My mother must have found out, because a short time later, those sessions ended. Still, those photos and the whole ghoulish ritual of being summoned to the basement became once and forever the definition of terror for me. And I still have nightmares even now that I'm in my 50s and live a cosseted, middle-class immigrant life. Photo after photo of young, dead Dominicans. But you know what? Mr. Wilson's scream, if you can believe it, was worse. In Colombia, he'd been tortured for seven weeks straight. They beat him with clubs. Water tortured him until his lungs just about burst. Put electric shocks on his legs, arms, chest, and of course, genitals, and forced him to watch others being tortured. The Brigada, into whose hands he had fallen, were convinced that he had something to do with the kidnapping and murder of Gloria Lada, 
who was from una familia muy rica y poderosa. A política so important she had represented Colombia at the UN. But Mr. Wilson's only crime had been to support a campesino group when he was a young teacher. And since they were the ones who supposedly killed Gloria Lara, the military bashed down his door one night while he was having a beer with his parents. All this he told my mother many years later on the phone. This was after he left London Terrace without saying goodbye after he kicked around New York City for a few years and then immigrated to Austria to be closer to his son, after he left Austria because he hated Austria, hated its racism, and because his son barely talked to him anymore, and migrated to Copenhagen at the suggestion of a Colombian acquaintance, after he decided that Copenhagen wasn't for him either, what with the police stopping him on the tram every day to check his ID to the point where there were days when he could barely leave his apartment. He was thinking maybe of returning to Colombia, if he could find the courage, or maybe moving in with a Danish woman he knew who lived in Sweden up near the border with Finland. Next time I call, it might be from the North Pole, he joked. New Jersey is warmer, she said, and that was the closest she came, I think, to asking him to return. That was the last time he and my mother spoke. By then, my mother's hair was all white, and she visited my brother's grave only twice a month as opposed to three or four times a week. She lived in Ridgefield Park, in a house I'd helped her buy. Do you think he went back to Colombia? I asked her. We were watching one of the Colombian crime dramas that were all the rage on the Spanish language channels. I don't know, she said. Did you love him? She removed her glasses, rubbed her eyes. Don't be ridiculous. My mother, who hadn't dated anyone after my father left, did you at least like him? Yes, I liked him, but I never had luck with men. Do you even remember what he looks like, she asked. Of course I do, I said. But the truth was, I didn't. There were no photographs of him, and no one else in the neighborhood remembered Wilson and Alberto Longo and, of course, my brother wasn't around to corroborate. Sometimes I dream about him, she offered. Really? She nodded. In the dreams, he speaks to me in English, and I understand. When I dreamed of Mr. Wilson, he often looked like my father or my brother. The dreams didn't change much. We were in a cuartel, or my basement, or a classroom, and Mr. Wilson would stare at me with an impossible distress until I couldn't take it anymore, and then I'd beg him in Spanish, please don't. He never listened. He opened his mouth as wide as you can imagine, 
and I'd brace myself for the scream that never came. That was Juno Diaz reading his story, The Ghosts of Gloria Lara. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 1996. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Lucinda Rosenfeld reads Returns by Annie Ernaux. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.